Welcome to Skim This. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last week, legal battles are rolling out across the U.S., while some Americans scramble to find the abortion care they need. We'll talk to Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to hear about the fight over abortion rights in her state and how it's a snapshot of what post-Roe America looks like. You'll also hear from listeners who told us how they're thinking about the future of the country now. Also on the show, we've got the other major headlines from the week, including the bombshell testimony about what happened on January 6th, Sweden and Finland's green light to join NATO, and two big-ticket SCOTUS rulings on the environment and immigration. And finally, this summer, airline travel has hit some major turbulence. We'll give you some tips on how you can reduce stress before you head to the airport. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Today, President Biden endorsed suspending the filibuster so Democratic lawmakers could codify Roe v. Wade into law. That endorsement comes as the battle over abortion rights is now playing out in states across the country. The impact of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe last week has been swift, but the aftermath will be felt for months and years to come. And now, Americans are scrambling. Google search data shows a spike in searches for abortion clinics near me and abortion pills. Emergency contraceptives have been flying off of the shelves, leading retailers to limit purchases. And businesses are moving to pay for employees' travel expenses related to abortion care. That's all happening as abortion laws are now a confusing patchwork across the country. Currently, abortion is fully banned in seven states like in Alabama and Arkansas, where trigger laws have already kicked in and abortion clinics have been ordered to shut down. More trigger laws banning the procedure in states like North Dakota and Tennessee are expected to take effect in the next few weeks. Meanwhile, abortion is still legal in 20 states and Washington, D.C., and some states like California are moving to protect abortion rights with amendments to state constitutions. But in total, More than half of the states in this country are expected to have severe limitations or total bans on abortion within the coming months. Cue a complicated legal battle that's already playing out in a few places. Take Utah and Louisiana. Judges in those states temporarily halted trigger laws this week, so abortion is still legal there for now. Then there's Texas. A judge there blocked the state's total abortion ban, but didn't overturn the state's so-called fetal heartbeat bill. So Texas patients can only receive an abortion up to six weeks into a pregnancy, before most people know they're pregnant to begin with. Trigger laws are also facing legal challenges in Arizona, Idaho, Kentucky, and Mississippi. And it's TBD how judges in those states will rule. And then there's Michigan. It's one of a handful of states that had an old abortion ban from before Roe was decided still on the books. 
And last month, a chief judge on the state's court of claims issued an injunction against that law, allowing people to still receive an abortion in the state. The state's own attorney general even said abortion care can't be prosecuted right now. But this week, two prosecutors said they'd be enforcing that law anyway. If all this sounds chaotic, it is. And it's just one snapshot of what's going on in a post-Roe America, where we have conflicting laws, conflicting opinions about prosecuting those laws, and a lot of mixed messages in between. One person who saw all this coming in her state was Michigan's Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. We talked to her not long before the final decision on Roe was handed down, because we wanted to know how is this going to play out in Michigan and in other states where access to abortion is going to come down to a fight among governors, judges, prosecutors, and legislatures? Here's that conversation with Governor Whitmer. Governor, I first just want you to walk us through the state of abortion rights in Michigan after Roe Falls. So with Roe falling, Michigan is poised to take the most dramatic swing in the country. Unfortunately, we will revert to a 1931 law that obviously it's been on the books for 91 years that would make Michigan going from a pro-choice state where women have bodily autonomy and reproductive rights, a place where Ohio women and Indiana women come to for that, to overnight having this 1931 law go into effect, which makes it a felony with zero exception. This is so dramatic, and that's why we've really pulled out all the stops to fight to protect the right to abortion in Michigan. One thing you did is you filed a lawsuit in April to protect the right to an abortion in the Michigan Constitution. Why did you do that, and do you think your actions could serve as a blueprint for other states? Well, you know, when I filed that lawsuit, I did take some heat. People said, oh, it's too early. It's not ripe yet. And then we saw the draft opinion come out and everyone was like, oh, my God, thank God you moved this fast. Right. Um, Not every governor has the same tools that we have in Michigan and not every state is poised to take as dramatic a swing as Michigan is. But our legal team scoured all of the different abilities that I have as governor to protect the right to choose and determined that this was an unusual but really strong set of tools that we could file a lawsuit on behalf of constitutional rights and take it straight to the Michigan Supreme Court. And so that's what I've done. We've done that, hoping the court will take the case up and move swiftly because obviously time is of the essence and this is a profound, scary moment for a lot of people. Have you spoken to any governors who are maybe in similar situations to you? And what have you heard from them about how they're kind of thinking through their options? Well, I have. And, you know, there are there's no state that is exactly situated the same. I think that's part of the challenge, right? That's part of why a national protection, a national law at recognizing this right federally is so important. We're going to see 50 states with 50 different sets of rules and 50 different standards of of living and 50 different uh, economic opportunities for women. And it's just going to wreak so much havoc. I have talked with a lot of my colleagues. Many of them are fortunately leading states that will remain pro-choice. A handful of us are, are struggling to make sure that we protect these rights, but we're all using every tool that's available to us in our individual states. 
You wrote an op-ed saying that state officials and private companies are going to have to, quote, get creative in order to protect abortion rights. What does that actually translate to in terms of options? So here in Michigan, you know, I filed that lawsuit. I've got these unique constitutional authorities as the governor of Michigan. We also worked with uh, stakeholders. So Planned Parenthood filed a lawsuit as well in the circuit court. They got an injunction against the 1931 law. I mean, it is being appealed and there are people that are trying to intervene. But at this point, it would be paused. And there's also efforts to collect signatures to amend our Constitution. We are thinking through and exploring every possibility for how we can ensure that women are still going to have the ability to make this most important, profound economic decision a woman will make in her lifetime is whether and when to have a child. And we want to make sure Michigan women have those rights going forward. And what do you want to see private companies do here, especially in moments where governments, state governments, might not be able to protect the right to an abortion? You know, there's no question there is a huge economic impact here. With the advent of Roe, more women were able to participate in the workforce and do planning and make decisions that were right for them and their families. We are now recovering from COVID-19, which had disproportionate impact on women in the workforce. We're trying to get women back into the workforce. And the worst thing we can do is take away women's abilities to make their own healthcare decisions in this moment. And so it is a collective need as we think about talent, but it's also a personal and, and familial need as we talk about the individuals. And that's why I am grateful for business leaders who are engaged on this, who understand you can't talk about wanting talent and workforce if you're not fighting to make sure that the talent and workforce has the rights they need to reenter the, the workplace. In terms of communication, what are you going to do specifically to inform people in your state about their options around reproductive health? Well, we'll be working with our communications folks, our Department of Health and Human Services, stakeholders, women's groups. Uh, we'll be working incredibly hard to get the word out, make sure that women know what they can do, where they can get access. We'll be working with the medical community. They're very nervous as well. There's so many pieces to confusion that is going to be created by this. And it is going to have a chilling effect on our ability to provide services and for women to make informed decisions. There's there's a lot of work to do in this space. You know, you're a Democratic governor and you have a legislature that's Republican. That's not just the case in Michigan. But I'm curious what this experience with abortion has taught you or shown you about the limits of state and local governments to protect people's rights and autonomy? Well, I'll say this, you know, right now in Michigan, the one thing that's keeping voting rights intact, it's keeping reproductive rights intact over the last three and a half years, the only thing that's kept that from being dismantled, both, is my veto. And that's how precarious this moment really is. If I had a legislature that would work with me on on these issues, I would be eager to enshrine protections into our law. But at this juncture, the legislature with whom I have to work at the moment is only focused on taking these rights away, making it harder for women to make our, our personal health decisions and make it harder for Michiganders to participate in elections. And I'll continue to veto all those efforts, but um, this is a precarious moment. 
what does that mean for the future of the country when certain rights and protections aren't federally protected? I think it's scary. You know, the fact that this was a right uh, afforded to American women for the better part of the last 50 years. Now, our, our kids, my daughters, who are 18 and 20, and every generation between mine and theirs, may have fewer rights than I had had my whole life. It's infuriating. And the fact that it's going to be a 50-state approach is really disturbing. This has been a part of being a woman in America for 50 years that is now going into an incredibly scary gray area that's really disturbing and ultimately, I think, going to hurt women nationally. And that's why, you know, I, I'd love to see a federal solution, but at this point, it's to the states and we're going to pull out all the stops and fight like hell. Governor, thank you so much. Thank you. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, as some Americans protested and others celebrated, one Democratic lawmaker took things a step further. If you read these opinions, issue without basis, rulings that deeply undermine the human and civil rights of the majority of Americans, we must see that through. There must be consequences. That's Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a Democrat from New York, speaking to meet the press over the weekend. In that interview, she called for some of the Supreme Court justices to be impeached. So wait, is that even possible? And how does that work? We'll explain in 60 seconds. As confidence in the Supreme Court hit a historic new low, AOC and some other Democratic lawmakers are proposing something that would shake up the court even more. To impeach and potentially remove two justices. AOC claimed that Justice Neil Gorsuch and Justice Brett Kavanaugh lied during their confirmation hearings about whether they would overturn Roe, and that lying under oath is an impeachable offense. So let's roll back the tape for a second to those hearings in question. First up, Justice Gorsuch. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court, worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. And here's what Justice Kavanaugh had to say. It's settled as a precedent of the Supreme Court entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. If you're hearing that and thinking, sounds like they're dodging bullets, well, they probably were at the time. Those weren't exactly straightforward answers, so they're hard to definitively classify as a lie. Plus, most judges who are looking for that SCOTUS promotion tend to be pretty cagey with their answers during confirmation hearings, especially about issues that might come before them on the bench. It's actually a practice that the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg started doing during her confirmation hearing, and is now called the Ginsburg Standard. Still, some politicians clearly feel they were duped. Besides AOC and progressive Democrats, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Republican Senator Susan Collins, who both voted to confirm the two justices, said they felt misled by them. But neither Manchin nor Collins has jumped on the impeachment train. Which brings us to the million-dollar question. Is it even possible to impeach a Supreme Court justice? The short answer is yes. 
But major caution here, it is not popular. In 1805, Justice Samuel Chase was impeached by the House. The Senate acquitted him later, but he's the only justice in American history to have been impeached. Though that number is higher in the lower court system. In total, 15 judges in lower courts have been impeached for issues such as sexual assault, bribery, and lying under oath. So what's the verdict in this case? Well, an impeachment in this instance doesn't seem very likely. Because one, this would be politically very tricky to pull off. And two, at the center of it is the age-old question about whether misleading or dodging is the same thing as lying. So without any legs to stand on, it'll be tough for those House Democrats to get an impeachment process off the ground. Meaning Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch probably aren't worried about losing their seats. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. In our Skim This special report last week, we asked how you were thinking about a post-Roe America. Now, we just wanted to turn the mic over to some of you and hear what's on your mind. Hi, my name is Danielle. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I just feel utterly sickened by this. and I can't even believe that we're at a point in our society where we are still having discussions over what women can do with their bodies. These policies and regulations are not reflective of the American people. I was just thinking about all of the women, including myself, who struggle to have a child and the one in four pregnancies that end in a miscarriage. I was unfortunate to have had two miscarriages at this point in my life, and I had to use both an abortion pill and a DNC, and I had to have a secondary DNC in order to become pregnant. And it just seems like some basic science is missing in any consideration. Maybe they should leave medicine to medical people. Hi, my name is Rebecca. Right now I'm going to school in Utah. Personally, I am distraught. I am frustrated. I am mourning for the work that our foremothers have done for the past 50 years, 100 years, that it's taken to get Roe v. Wade even passed. I'm especially scared for those women who are not going to be able to afford the abortions in the future. Abortions are still going to happen, no matter if it's legal or not. They're going to happen in an unsafe manner. And I'm really scared, especially about Clarence Thomas, whatever he said about fighting same-sex marriage, fighting contraception. So I'm ready to dip out of the country. I'm so tired of this. Hi, I'm a psychologist. I look at human suffering in particular. I think of this decision as talking about a woman, almost as if it's a single person experience. But 
with only special exception, pregnancy is a two-person experience. But where is the man or the father brought into the discussion? Thanks to everyone who called in. And we're going to continue to open up our voicemail for anyone who wants to share their thoughts. We might play it on another show, and you can find the number to reach us in our show notes. Let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, this morning, the Supreme Court dropped decisions for two highly anticipated cases. The first ruling was a major blow to President Biden's climate agenda. The Supremes ruled 6-3 to three that the Environmental Protection Agency has limited authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants meaning the federal government now has a reduced ability to address climate change. This is also a victory for the GOP and energy companies, who've been wanting the court to step in and strip back environmental regulations. The other major ruling we got today was about former President Donald Trump's controversial Remain in Mexico program. Reminder, Remain in Mexico required asylum seekers who arrived at the border to wait in their home country until their asylum hearings. Team Biden tried to end that program back in June 2021, but that got immediately challenged by Texas and Missouri. And now, in a 5-4 decision, SCOTUS just handed President Biden a W on this one, saying he's within his rights to shut the program down. And speaking of SCOTUS, today, Justice Stephen Breyer officially hung up his robes and retired from the bench. At 83 years old, he's been on the court for 27 years and is considered to be the most moderate of the court's three liberal justices. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson will take Justice Breyer's spot, and she was sworn in today. She's also made history as the first Black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. With Judge Jackson stepping in, the balance of the court will still stay the same, with a 6-3 conservative supermajority. And given some of the high-profile cases the court is likely to take up next year, including cases about affirmative action and election laws, Judge Jackson is hopefully ready to dive right in. All right, next headline. The January 6th committee did something we all kind of hate— they added another meeting to the calendar with no heads up. On Tuesday, they held a previously unscheduled hearing with a testimony that apparently couldn't wait. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. That's Cassidy Hutchinson, a top aide to the former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. On Tuesday, she testified IRL, and gave some of the spiciest details on what former President Donald Trump and some of his staff were up to on January 6th. Here's what we learned from her testimony. First, Hutchinson shared that Trump knew that some of the attendees at his January 6th speech had weapons, yet he still encouraged them to go to the Capitol. Hutchinson said that Trump was angry that the rioters were being stopped by magnetometers, aka what the Secret Service uses to find hidden weapons. The next bombshell? Hutchinson cited a second-hand story she heard from the deputy chief of staff, 
about how Trump apparently took his anger out on a Secret Service agent when he found out he couldn't go to the Capitol. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. We should note, this claim is being disputed. The Secret Service denied that Trump assaulted an agent or reached for the wheel, but they didn't deny that he wanted to make his way to the Capitol. We also learned that during the riot, White House counsel Pat Cipollone sent a loud and clear message to Trump and his aides, go to the Capitol and we're screwed. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And the final revelation? The president's chief of staff at the time, Mark Meadows, and advisor Rudy Giuliani both sought presidential pardons after January 6th. So what actually happens with all this info? Well, it's now part of the public record to paint a more detailed picture of what happened that day. And while some legal experts say that this testimony provides some evidence to support a criminal trial for Donald Trump, the Department of Justice hasn't given any signals that it wants to pursue action against the former president. As for the hearings, those will continue in July, and it's up to the panel to decide how to move forward as more evidence comes to the surface. Okay, let's go abroad for our next headline. Today, NATO leaders took the historic decision to invite Finland and Sweden to become members of NATO. Here's the context. After months of courting the security alliance, the two Scandinavian countries are now making things official with NATO. This is a big step for Finland and Sweden, who have historically been neutral countries. But with the war in Ukraine looming nearby, they decided it was time to get in on the NATO action. And getting accepted wasn't smooth sailing, because the president of fellow NATO member Turkey accused the two countries of supporting a terrorist organization a.k.a. the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which has called for an independent Kurdish state within Turkey. And that made things tricky, because applicants need approval from all 30 members in order to join. So what changed Turkey's mind? Basically, Finland and Sweden agreed to cross items off of Turkey's wish list by no longer supporting the Kurdistan Workers' Party, lifting arms restrictions, and working on extradition requests. NATO formally invited the two countries to join on Wednesday, but it'll take some time before they're officially part of the group. In the meantime, the news of an expanding alliance isn't sitting well with Vladimir Putin. Remember, Putin started the war in Ukraine in part because of NATO's growing influence near his Russian territories. And he's already shown he's not a happy camper. As NATO convened this week, Russia launched missiles into a shopping mall in Ukraine, where a thousand people were shopping. The attack killed at least 20 people and injured more than 50 others, and a dozen people are still missing. Everyone's still watching what Putin's next moves will be, 
But NATO's holding strong on how it feels about Russia, and even labeled the country its most significant and direct threat. The alliance also said this week that it's committed to deploying more military forces on its eastern flank, and President Biden upped the ante, announcing a permanent U.S. military base in Poland and an overall increase in the U.S.'s military presence in Europe. And our final headline this week. At least 53 migrants died in a tractor trailer in San Antonio, Texas on Monday, marking the deadliest migrant tragedy in recent years. In total, 62 people were in the unventilated truck, and they came from countries like Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. Heat stroke and dehydration were the main causes of death. Officials believe the people found were part of a smuggling attempt, as there's been a surge in migrants crossing the U.S. border in recent months. On Thursday, federal authorities said they'd arrested and charged four men in connection with the deaths on charges of firearms possession, conspiracy, and smuggling. If you've gone to an airport recently, this might sound all too familiar. For thousands of Americans this week, their summer getaways landing them in an airport Armageddon. You just end up sitting in the LaGuardia terminal while your flight gets delayed hour after hour after hour after hour. Travel app Hopper reports more than a quarter of recent flights have been delayed, fueled by industry staffing shortages, soaring demand and severe weather. And while that first delay might not feel too painful, especially depending on how close you are to an Auntie Anne's or to the airport bar, these travel headaches are getting exhausting. So as we head into summer vacation season, we wanted to get some tips to navigate the not-so-friendly skies. And we've got some help from Misty Bells, the Vice President of Global Public Relations for Virtuoso, a travel advisory service. And before we get to her advice, let's start by backing up and reminding ourselves how we got to airport Armageddon in the first place. There is a sort of perfect convergence of events right now. You have lots of people wanting to travel, and you have staffing issues that make that more complicated, on top of weather delays that we typically have throughout the summer anyway. You know, we're always dealing with thunderstorms in the Midwest, so O'Hare is always going to be backed up, DFW is always going to be backed up. But when you add in the travel resurgence that we're seeing and you add in the additional staffing issues, not just at airlines, but at airports as well, it does become a much more complicated travel landscape. Just how complicated are we talking? Last weekend, more than 800 flights were canceled just on Sunday. And right after the weekend, nearly 5,000 flights were delayed on Monday. Over the Father's Day and Juneteenth weekend, more than 2,000 flights were canceled and at least 10,000 were delayed. Those delay and cancellation numbers each weekend are up from where they were in May. And it's both domestic and international flights that are getting axed last minute. Ahead of this holiday weekend, one airline is already sending out an SOS. Delta warned of, quote, operational challenges expected this weekend for travelers. Things are so bad that this week, some politicians, including Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, 
asked Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to step in and protect passengers by fining airlines for cancellations and giving stipends to stranded travelers. It's TBD if Secretary Pete is going to act here. But in the meantime, we figured there's got to be something we can do. And it turns out you can actually start to minimize your travel headaches well before you hop in the Uber to the airport. Starting with the booking process. Here's the first tip. Book directly with an airline or an IRL travel advisor and not with a flight comparison site like Expedia. That can make for a smoother and cheaper rebooking process should your flight get canceled. If you do have status on an airline, consider booking your trips through them because they often have a separate quicker line or phone hotline for people with status. The third piece of booking advice is to look at your calendar. Bells told us flights at specific times of the day or days of the week are often canceled or delayed less than others. Take the first flight out every morning. That is the most assured flight to take for not time. And you have fewer cancellations for the, the first flight of the day. As the day moves on, things get backed up. Travel is impacted by the weather delays more in the late afternoon and evening. So you're, you're most assured a good travel experience by traveling on that first flight of the day, which I will admit is very painful to get up at 4 a.m. sometimes to make that happen. And P.S., try to avoid flying on a Monday or a Friday if you can. And if you're traveling for a specific event like a wedding, maybe don't plan on getting there right before the ceremony. Pad your timeline there. Make sure you're not arriving and cutting it too close to the actual event that you're wanting to attend. Add in another day, maybe even two extra days of travel time on the front end, just to make sure that you get there in time in case there are delays. Also, schedule a direct flight whenever you can, which we know can be a lot more expensive. So if you do have to connect, make sure you allow enough time, no tight connections. I would say allow at least two hours for your connection time. Again, to make sure you're kind of padded for any delays that might happen for your first flight. Also, I highly recommend packing carry-on if you can. If you're like me and you can't pack light, also look at shipping your bags. And here's one last thing to keep in mind before you book that flight. Get travel insurance. Even if you've never purchased travel insurance before, now is the time to do it because those really loose cancellation policies that we saw during COVID are starting to tighten back up again. And so you don't have the same flexibility with airlines and with hotels that you had, you know, 18 months ago. Okay, so now we're booked and we are excited. But what should we keep in mind as travel day approaches? Number one, start checking the weather where you are and at your destination a few days in advance. So if there's bad weather brewing, you can potentially rebook yourself, if your schedule allows. Two, check if your flight is canceled or delayed before you leave your house and sign up for those text messages or emails from the airline to alert you. And three, leave enough time to get to the airport and through airport security. And to help, consider getting TSA PreCheck, Clear, or Global Entry to help you zip through security lines faster. And finally, let's talk about what to do if your flight does get canceled or delayed way past your bedtime. Hint, it's going to involve a lot of multitasking. 
you're gonna wanna run to get in line to rebook with an agent at the airport. And once you're in line, multitask on your phone to see if you can rebook yourself faster. You also should consider doing a flight comparison search to see if another airline has a cheaper or more convenient flight option. But after all of that, if you do happen to end up getting stuck somewhere for a while, ask the airline for a food or airport voucher. So all in all, it seems like travel has hit a patch of rough air. But thanks to this advice, we're hoping for clear skies ahead and a bit more smooth sailing or at least a two-for-one special at the airport bar. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim, 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.